Welcome to the Public Morality. Alan Taylor is one of America's most distinguished historians. He is the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Professor at the University of Virginia, a two-time winner of the Pulitzer Prize and author of 10 books, nearly all dealing with American history. Taylor describes his latest offering, American Republics, A Continental History of the United States, 1783-1850, as a sequel to his two earlier books, American Colonies, The Settling of North America, and American Revolutions, A Continental History, 1750-1804. We're honored to have this eminent scholar on the public morality. Alan Taylor, welcome to the public morality. Thank you very much for having me on. I want to begin with the timeline that's inserted in the title, 1783-1850. Could you give us an overview as to why that timeline is central to the book's thesis? Mm -hmm. Well, 1783 is the end of the war that achieved American independence, um, and it inaugurates a, a decade of real political crisis for the United States. And then 1850 is when we have the the Compromise of 1850, which attempts to resolve crisis over the expansion of the United States into territories conquered from Mexico. And so the story is very much about the relationship of the United States to Canada and to Mexico and the story of American expansion westward and how it creates problems at the same time that it's trying to address a core problem to keeping the union of the states together. And uh, staying staying with the title, why do you call it American Republics plural? Explain. Well, I'm emphasizing that this is not a story of one united nation yet. It's called the United States, but these states were were still quite semi-independent. And they, they tended to think in terms of regional blocks particularly the Northeast and the South, and then the third region was the West at the time. That's one reason. Uh, So the the union is really a union of different Republican states. So it's a little bit of a misnomer to speak of the early Republic. It's really the early Republics, uh, loosely united in this union in which the different member states and the different people disagreed about what that union should be. And then there's also, there are other republics in North America. There are republics that that emerge first, independent, say Vermont or Franklin, which was Eastern Tennessee, or Texas, which was an independent republic for a while. Mexico is a republic and there's very tense relations between the United States and the Republic of Mexico. And then Haiti is a key republic in North America, if we include the West Indies. And relations between Haiti and the United States are quite central to the story that I want to tell here. And then uh, talk about, uh, and we're just right now, just I'm thinking about your introduction. Talk, talk about uh, the incongruent behavior that you articulate between the ideals, the American ideals, and the realities of, of that behavior as critical uh, to this time period that, that, that you discuss in, in the introduction? Well, the American Revolution in general and the Declaration of Independence in particular lay out quite utopian principles. Uh, utopian for their time, certainly. Uh, there was no place on earth where all men were equal. So to lay out as a premise 
that this is a nation that's going to be founded on the recognition that all men are created equal is a pretty daunting challenge. And But I think it's a mistake to assume that that was achieved. And anybody who looks reasonably closely at our history in this early period can see that no matter how eloquent those words were and how noble that aspiration was, that the reality was really different. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the people who wrote those words were just hypocrites. It means that achieving that's really tough because self-interest comes in in so many ways to block the realization of that aspiration. So I think the challenge for any of us writing or thinking about that early time is to balance out saying, you know, that's a really noble aspiration. And we, 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 we are indebted to those who would put their names to that statement. And anybody who's tried to work for social justice in this country ever since has gone back to those words for very good reason. That's not to say that they achieved it fully in their own time. Obviously, they did not since we haven't even achieved it now. So uh, I'm trying to balance that out in writing this story. And and, uh, would it be fair to say that that the job of, of the historian is to relinquish what he or she thinks about the contemporary period and to stay in that moment, to stay, in, in your case, in the latter part of the 18th century and in the first half of the 19th century? Well, I'd say as a historian, you've got two goals that are intention. One is we are interpreters. We're interpreters between the past and the present. So I can't just ignore the present world that I live in. I can't you know, I'm trying to reach people, yourself, other, my readers, people who are listening to this program. I'm trying trying to speak in a way about the past that makes the past, yes, interesting, but also to see that there are connections between the world we live in today and, and what was done and what was not done in the past. That said, I, I also have to understand that the people who lived in the past were not us. They didn't think the same way we do. Uh, They lived in a society which was arranged differently than the one we live in. They lived with a technology that was extraordinarily primitive by our standards. And that put certain constraints on them. So you're trying to balance the fact that you're, you're trying to understand the past on its own terms. But then you're trying to interpret that past once you have that understanding on its own terms for people who live in the present. You you know we we, we talked um, we started this sort of line of questioning talking about sort of the the incongruence about the words that were placed on paper and the implementation of those words. Um, you know one of, it's it's a I guess my word I'm using the word incongruence here, but I also would like to have you just say a, a moment about the early days of the um, what you, you define as the crude rustic capital that we know today as Washington, D.C. Say a little bit about that, if you would. Well, this is another one of these daring gambles that that generation of leaders made. Why would you decide, instead of being in a perfectly good city like Philadelphia or New York, which were the first two U.S. capitals under the new Constitution, why not stay in one of them? You already got the infrastructure set up. Instead, you say, no, we got this spot of farmland and woods on the banks of the Potomac River, which is prone to malaria. Uh, And we're going to put the capital right there. We're going to build all of these structures. 
Well, it tells you a lot about the guys who did this. It's a it's a political compromise. It tends to satisfy the leading politicians of Virginia that wanted to have the capital closer to them. It's meant to satisfy people who have prejudices against cities, who believe that if you build this from from the ground up, uh, and it will be essentially stay a kind of rustic town with some grand buildings in it that you're somehow making the republic safer. Those are all the considerations that went into choosing Washington. And it was not a pretty picture for many decades. So the people visiting who from Europe who were used to places like Berlin or Paris or London, and they get to Washington, D.C., imagine these poor diplomats, and they find themselves in this place where they might be in this very impressive stone capital building. And then they're looking out and they're seeing these, sh- these shacks and these stumps and animals rooting around in the streets, and it's just a contrast. In fact, as you write, as I recall, that even in the hemisphere, uh, Mexico City was far more opulent than 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 Washington D.C. Well, it's it's more opulent certainly in its core. I mean, Mexico City is built on top of the old Aztec capital Tenochtitlan, which had had been far more impressive than any city, say, in Spain, which was where the conquerors of, of the Aztecs came from. So they were astonished by this place. And then they tore it apart and they rebuilt it and they built it with all these uh, Baroque palaces at the core of it. Now, it's also a city with extreme poverty, um, but the poverty tended to be pushed to the margins of the city. So, But anybody who came from Europe and looked at Mexico City would say, this is a real city. Uh, they would not really say that of Washington, D.C. at the same time. I'm speaking with two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Professor Alan Taylor about his latest book, American Republic's Continental History of the United States, 1783 to 1850. Professor Taylor, would, would it be fair to suggest that the strength and weakness simultaneously of the Constitution in its original form rested in its ambiguity? Your thoughts? I I would agree in that it was a hard fight to get that ratified. We we can just assume that, you know, these brilliant men, they go to Philadelphia, they write these documents, and it's just going to come out and everybody's going to say, oh, that's perfect. That's not. Uh, the, The range of views went from this is better than what we've had to oh my God, this is a threat to freedom. No way am I going along with this. And that was probably the dominant position, but that was largely held by people who were in the countryside. They were a majority of Americans at the time, but they weren't well positioned to influence politics. Uh, The people in the seaport cities were much more positioned because that's where these ratifying conventions were held. That's where most of the political elite lived. That's where the newspapers were published. Um, so, and, and the people who are pushing this had to make some compromises along the way by putting in the Bill of Rights eventually, so that the, the Constitution was, was really very difficult to get through. And one of the political assets that the proponents of it had was, it's a pretty vague Constitution in some key places. Mm-hmm. And so it's possible for different people to read that document differently. 
So it's a stroke of political genius that the language is open-ended in certain places. So it meant that a farmer in South Carolina and somebody who's a merchant in New York City could read this a bit differently and say, yeah, it's my constitution, I'm fine with that. Our problem has been ever since in that we have had endless disputes over what does this document really mean? And every session of the Supreme Court is filled with these disputes, which I think go back to the ambiguity of the Constitution's language. Hmm. And that said, uh, would you classify uh, through your lens the institution of slavery with the inclusion of the Three-Fifths Compromise and Fugitive Slave Laws, though they never expressly mentioned slavery, um, does that original document make slavery constitutional in your view? Well, that's a tough thing because, as you say, they went through great convolutions of language. They commit many crimes against the English language just to avoid <laughs> putting in the term slavery when they mean slavery at several key junctures, including the three-fifths clause and the prohibition on any ban on the importation of African Africans as slaves for 20 years and in mandating fugitive slave laws, which would retrieve runaways seeking freedom from northern states uh, and force them back into slavery in the South. All of those are key elements in the Constitution. The Constitution would not have been approved by the delegates, and it would not have been ratified by enough states if those features were not in there. So that is a recognition, then, that's, that a pact with slavery is foundational to the Constitutional Union of the United States. That doesn't mean everybody liked it. And it doesn't mean that ever since people have been working against it and saying, look, the Constitution is supposed to be an organic document that will change with changing times, that we can understand it a bit differently. We can understand its potential more fully and that's what's happened ever since. And it's part of this ongoing debate over the U.S. Constitution and whether or not it um, is compatible in the long range with slavery. Certainly in the short term, it was fundamental with it. But the Constitution's changed with amendments. So the, the, the great amendments of the late 1860s, mid-1860s, late-1860s, um, have transformed that document uh, and, and made it much more important for the freedom of all people in the United States than it was before 1865. Um, over, over on, uh, I'm not holding you to this, I'm just, I just happened to notice over on page 173, you wrote what I thought was a very powerful line, quote, while slavery divided the country, racism united most whites, North and South. Now, outside of the small percentage of whites, abolitionists and so forth, uh, oppo uh, opposed to slavery, um, most, most white Americans were not prepared to include the enslaved as part of America's civic virtue that we talked about, you mentioned earlier. What impact mm -hmm. long-term on the civic virtue did, did that decision have, that, that not including the enslaved? Well, we're living with it to this day. Um, and it, one of the things that was most astonishing, shocking to me is to just read the reflexive racism of white Americans 
from the top of society all the way down that you can find in the first half of the 19th century. It, um, it's a, we can say, oh, that's just some people saying that. No, in most of the Northern states, they did not allow civil rights to free African-Americans. They couldn't vote. Uh, they couldn't go to universities. Uh, they couldn't hold any of the higher professions. They were segregated into the worst neighborhoods in the cities. It's, uh, and then whenever there was a referendum where somebody proposed to civil rights to free African-Americans in Northern states, they were almost always voted down and by extraordinary margins. So uh, until we recognize that that's what the United States was in the first half of the 19th century, then, then we don't really understand uh, where we have come from and why it is so difficult or has been so difficult uh, to make progress in this country. Um, at, at the turn of the 18th century, you, you talked about the uh, American Colonization Society uh, in the promotion of, of deporting blacks to, to Africa. How viable was that group? Again, that kind of depends on what you mean by viable. It's viable and it acts a big chunk of the American political elite. So, it, and it's, it's a, but it's a complete fantasy land. Uh, the notion that people who don't like to pay taxes are going to fund a massive operation to relocate millions of people across the Atlantic Ocean as the only way that they would end slavery is in effect a way to say, we're not really going to end slavery. Now, did, were the people who engaged in, in the colonization society just complete hypocrites? Some of them were. Uh, but most of them just wanted to believe this fantasy because they wanted some way to turn to their white neighbors and say, don't worry, we'll free the blacks, but they won't be your neighbors. You won't have to compete with them for jobs because they're going to be back in West Africa. Well, most, almost all of the people held in slavery had never, ever lived in Africa. Maybe their grandparents or great parent, grandparents had done so. But these were African-Americans, not Africans. Uh, and the vast majority of them want, did not want to go back to West Africa. Not that they'd ever been in West Africa in the first place. Uh, and, and, and so the notion that you are, uh, destroy a system that was foundational to the economy in about half of the United States, compensate investors fully for the assessed value of those human beings held as property, and then pay for this massive logistic operation at a time when it was a bare bones operation and nobody wanted to pay taxes, that is irrational that it shows you the desperation of people who wanted to say, look, I'm anti-slavery uh, and I understand you don't want blacks as your neighbors, so here's my solution. Um, and it's a non-solution. And, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a position that, that Lincoln held at least up until 1862, at least publicly. And as mm -hmm. I, as I mm -hmm. recall, the one, even when Lincoln met with some uh, African-American leaders, uh, with the with the Emancipation Proclamation in his desk drawer, he's like, "But for your race, we're having this war." So, I mean, it, it, it's a theory that I guess had some staying power. I guess what I, guess what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a astonishing that it's somebody as 
sensible. Abraham Lincoln is one of the most sensible men who ever served in political office in this country. That somebody as sensible and wise as Abraham Lincoln would remain attached to this fantasy so long shows you, you know, just the desperation of these guys who could see the evils of slavery, uh, but could also see that their constituents were committed to white supremacy. Uh, so, but, you know, I think Frederick Douglass kind of captured it perfectly after Lincoln's death. And he said, by an abolitionist standard, Lincoln was really disappointing. But by the standard of a statesman who was compelled to pay attention to public opinion in the country he led, he was radical, swift, and zealous. And so I, at the end of the day, I'm inclined to give Lincoln credit for being able to mature morally over time and to see that in, in the end of his political career, he staked his life and his whole legacy on um, achieving freedom for all Americans, at least for African-Americans. I mean, the, the treatment of native peoples was still pretty terrible. Um, and so I, I'm inclined to say, look, let's focus on Lincoln's growth over time. It's important to understand he started out at a very limited position, which was standard in the political elite of the time that, that he lived. But he got a hell of a lot better over time. Well, one of the things that, you, that, that I take from your text and, and, and given your, your, your last statement, I, I mean, people on the outside push from the extremes will push a certain way. But Abraham Lincoln mm -hmm. could not have been an abolitionist any more than Franklin D. Roosevelt could have been a uh, leader of the of civil rights or, or, or even Lyndon Johnson, for that matter, couldn't have led the civil rights movement. That's just not how we're structured. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's a tough thing to, to move majority opinion in this country. And if you're going to be a political leader, you got to get elected. Uh, and you got to be elected where the voters are at at the time you run. We, we like to believe, okay, great leaders can, can move the people in a different direction. Well, let's take Johnson for a who brought that up. If there's not Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and other people pushing really hard from their particular position outside of elected office, then you don't get changes by the people who are in power at the, at the center of these political institutions. But if you also don't get a Johnson who's willing to say, look, I was a segregationist for a long time and I was wrong and we got to do something with this. And he's willing to use all of his powers of manipulation and intimidation to put pressure on these Southern Democratic senators to say, look, you go along with this or I'm going to screw you. <laughs> Okay, so that's not Martin Luther King talking, that's LBJ talking. But unless you've got an LBJ doing that in some kind of synergy with what Martin Luther King was doing, you don't get the big changes, uh, in my opinion. Yeah. Talk about, if you would, the role of the, the post-independence war debt uh, that contributed to and how it contributed to the formulation of the republic that started, as, as, as you articulate, republics, plural. Well, the United States began with a massive war debt. Um, they, they, 
they were not paying for the war of the American Revolution on a pay-as-you-go basis. That, that was simply impossible. So they owed a lot to foreign governments, foreign creditors. They owed a lot to American people, including former soldiers. And that's a compelling problem because um, the United States government under the original constitution, known as the Articles of Confederation, was incredibly weak, did not have the power to tax people. So where are they going to get the money? Well, they basically would send a bill to every state. But the, the United States at that time functioned the way the United Nations does today. The United Nations can't directly tax the people of the world. It has to send a bill to every country and say, please pay this. And uh, often countries don't fully pay. The United States for many years has not fully paid it. Uh, and that was the, the situation for the United States in the early 1780s, is they got this enormous debt and they're, they're basically reliant on begging letters to the states to get funds. And then the states are falling short on it, which is creating a, a crisis with many dimensions within the United States during the 1780s. You know, one of my favorite quotes from this time period comes from uh, Benjamin Rush. And I think for me, Rush really sums up the, the, the American experiment. And he writes... Uh, there is nothing more common to confound the terms of the American Revolution with those of the late American War. The American War is over, but that's far from the case with the American Revolution. On the contrary, nothing but the first act of the great drama is closed. Uh, in my view, in, in reading your text, it, I felt you were amplifying Russia's words. I wonder how you saw that. No, I absolutely agree with that. And, but it's a real struggle because so many people, including most of my students, the American Revolution was a war. It ended in 1783. War is over. Revolution's over. No, the revolution was just beginning. Um, and, and that's why you don't get the Constitution until four years later. And then uh, the difficult ratification battle and then struggles ever since over what this means. Uh, you know, Frederick Douglass in the 1850s and 60s is carrying on the American Revolution because he knew that it was not did not end in 1783. And Martin Luther King is carrying on the American Revolution because he knew it wasn't over in 1783. Uh, we are still in the midst of the American Revolution, I would say. And uh, I think the, if, if we would recognize that and stop saying, you know, the founders settled everything and it was all over and done with once the British made a peace treaty, we'd be a hell of a lot better. Hmm. Uh, also, um, I, one of my, another one of my takeaways from your text is that one could, that, that you offer in the early stages of the United States, um, given its weakened state, it really... Um, depended on westward expansion for its viability. Is that an accurate assessment? And could you also talk about the measures used to disrupt the alliances that uh, Native Americans had with other foreign powers? Well, the American Union of the States is extremely precious to the people who formed it. Um, it's not for the reason that we would like to believe now. We would like to believe that they came together because they all thought of themselves as Americans and they felt that this is the only way to fulfill their destiny is as a United Nation. In fact, their close identities with particular states still prevailed. People tended to think I'm a Virginian or I'm from New York. And so they thought of the United States as a, still a glorified confederation of states. 
And one of its prime purpose was to keep them from killing one another um, because they, they were very fearful of civil wars. And they looked at the example of Europe um, where there were constant wars or almost constant over the balance of power. And they said, we want to avoid that. We know that you living in South Carolina, very different from us in Massachusetts. And what we've got to do is come up with a framework so that we can coordinate our foreign policy and our defense policy uh, and our trade policy. Uh, but then we'll allow, allow a lot of leeway for everything else for the particular states. So, so that was extremely important. But then the issue is, okay, um, in order to pay this national debt, to finance it at least, we're gonna to need to sell lands in the West. To accommodate our population that's doubling about every 22 years, we're going to need a hell of a lot more farms in the West. And the West at that time meant anything on the other side of the Appalachian Mountains, places like Indiana and Illinois and Ohio and Kentucky. And so expansion is going to be essential to keep the social peace, because if, if you've got a doubling population and on the same land base, then, and it's going to remain an agricultural company, country, you're going to have a lot poorer people in the future unless you expand. And unless you can sell lands to the new generation of people, you're not going to be able to fund this government. So for those reasons, you've got to expand. Uh, but then the problem is, if you do that, you're going to trigger wars with native peoples, and those native peoples could seek alliances with the British who are up in Canada or the Spanish who are in Louisiana or Florida. Uh, so there's fear about that, and that means you've got to have an army that's going to be involved in this expansion. And then there's the fear, well, what happens if you succeed in expanding in one direction, let's say up into Canada, but not into Florida or Louisiana? If that happens and the North becomes more powerful in this union, well, the South becomes relatively poorer. So there's constant tension between the regions over trying to keep this Western expansion balanced so that there will still be a balance of power in Congress between North and South. Uh, one of the views um, that, that, that I hold about the United States, and which was um, the thesis for my last book, The Radical Declaration, was that the United States is held together by the ideals of liberty and equality, officially. Unofficially, there's a silent third partner, Paradox. Uh, I find the Louisiana Purchase to be one of the great paradoxical moments uh, in the United States. Um, talk about its importance and was it paradoxical uh, in your view, given our la your last comments on westward expansion? Well, it solved a problem, a big problem at the time. The big problem was the, the prospect of Napoleon's empire of France controlling the New Orleans. New Orleans is, in the 19th century, the most strategic place in North America. Uh, trade flowed down the rivers, like the Ohio and the Mississippi and the Cumberland and the Tennessee and the Missouri, and it's all collected together into the Mississippi, and then it reaches the Gulf of Mexico just a few miles south of New Orleans. So New Orleans is the great choke point. You control New Orleans, you control the interior of North America. And once Napoleon was, was poised to, to take control of New Orleans, panic broke out. Panic broke out among the political leaders of the United States. They said, if this happens, Napoleon will be able to detach all of our Western lands and add them to his empire by using this choke point. 
So Jefferson just wanted to purchase New Orleans. He, he thought he, he somehow thought he could fool Napoleon, who was in the business of fooling and intimidating everybody in the world at that time. He was the grand champion of fooling people. But Jefferson thought, I'll just trick Napoleon into just selling me New Orleans and he can keep the western half of Louisiana, which was everything on the western banks of the Mississippi River all the way up to Minnesota. Uh, and I, I can get that on the cheap, maybe about $6 million. But Napoleon um, became frustrated with Louisiana, and he, he said to American diplomats, take it all or leave it. $15 million, equivalent of $15 million in French money, uh, but you got to take the whole thing. And, and initially, the diplomats were, well, we're not really authorized by Jefferson to do that, um, but this solves the problem. And so they accepted the deal. They sent it to Jefferson. And then Jefferson has to debate, do I send this forward to the U.S. Senate? Because the treaties so has to be ratified by the Senate or it has to be approved by the Senate and then ratified by the president. Uh, and he says, but this is not constitutional because I'm a strict constructionist constitution. And uh, there's nowhere in the constitution for me to purchase as president, purchase foreign territory. So he says, come make get an amendment to the Constitution first. And then all the sensible people, including James Madison, said, no, Napoleon is prone to change his mind. This solves an immense problem. Let's forget about the constitutional qualms you have. Send this to the Senate without any comment on your part. And that's what Jefferson does. And we, we get this new territory added to the United States, and it resolves the new world for the time being. But then there's also the thing is, this is a country founded on, says, self-determination for people. And the people who are taken in, they weren't consulted. The people of New Orleans or the native peoples who lived out around the Missouri Valley, none of them got to say whether they wanted to be in the United States or not. And and also, I would add to that that paradoxical critique, um, don't, I mean, the whole reason for the Louisiana Purchase, don't we also owe some debt to the Haitian Revolution uh, that sort of forced on Napoleon's hand? Did I have that history right? Yes, absolutely you do. Uh, and that's what I said when, when uh, that's what I implied when I said Napoleon had become fed up with holding Louisiana, in part because he needed an army to occupy it. The army that was assigned to that was first sent to what is now Haiti, uh, which was a rebellious um, French colony of Saint-Domingue in which the rebels were former enslaved people. And um, and uh, Napoleon is trying to snuff out that rebellion and restore people to slavery. And, and it's, he's, his army is waging a genocidal campaign there. Um, the, the thought was, we may have to wipe all of the people out here and then bring in new enslaved people from Africa. But the resistance um, by the people who would uh, very soon declare themselves the independent country of Haiti, those people, um, the, the, the rebels of Saint-Domingue, uh, were so fierce in their resistance. And uh, tropical diseases also contributed to the destruction of the French army so that Napoleon no longer had an army to occupy Louisiana um, thanks to this. And so so if, if we're going to tell the full story of the Louisiana Purchase, we cannot leave that dimension out. Uh, as much as we like to think whatever happens to us in the, in the contemporary moment is like unprecedented, and long before the infamous uh, Bush versus Gore 2000 election, there was the election of 1800. Um, 
Talk about that election, if you would. And did it, in your view, have an, a lasting impact on a fledgling nation at the tour? At the time, only had three elect, uh, full elections under their belt. Well, the, the two first uh, elections to the presidency were unanimous for George Washington. And when I say unanimous, it, it wasn't by a popular vote. That's not how the presidential election was initially set up by the Constitution. It was meant to be an indirect election by the electors of the Electoral College. And those electors uh, all cast all of their votes for Washington, the first two. So the first contested election came in 1796. And still most of the states were not allowing a direct election by voters. Um, and the electors split and narrowly John Adams became uh, the, the next president of the United States in 1796 with Thomas Jefferson as his uh, vice president, even though they were great political rivals. Well, then we get to 1800, and the, the party discipline was so complete among the uh, Democratic Republicans, which is the party of Jefferson and of Aaron Burr, who was his running mate, that they each finished with the same number of electoral votes because each elector got to cast two votes. And, but did not get to say one's for president, one's for vice president. You just chose with whoever you thought were the two best gentlemen to lead the country. That's how it was originally set up because the founders of the authors of the constitution did not anticipate and did not want political parties. So they didn't know there would be this kind of coordination. So suddenly they got this crisis because Burr is a political operator, wheeler and dealer, and he's willing to entertain becoming president with the help of the opposition party because the election's thrown into the House of Representatives. And under the Constitution, it's a very arcane rule, which is you'll be selected by the states and each state will have equal power. So that meant a congressional delegation from a big state like Virginia, which would have over a dozen congressmen, and Rhode Island, which would have a couple, would have exactly the same weight. And they don't vote as individuals. The people of Rhode Island would have to caucus, meaning the, the congressmen, and say, how are we going to cast our one vote? So if there's an equal number of congressmen, some of them wanting Burr and some wanting Jefferson, that state can't cast a vote. So it's a complete mess. And there are 35 votes and they're sleeping in the halls of Congress and people outside are threatening civil war if their particular candidate does not become the president. And so it's a very close run thing until certain Federalists, encouraged by Alexander Hamm, said, you know, Jefferson's the lesser of the two evils. Let's just withhold our votes and let him be elected president. And that's what happens. Okay, Professor Taylor, now we've, we've come to the, I'm calling it the trivia segment of the program. Uh, in your view, when did the War of 1812 commence? <laughs> well, I argue in the book. I know you do. That's really, why I'm asking. You really should be calling it the War of the 1810s. <laughs> so I would say in 1810 is when we should say it started. And it, it starts with certain American operations to try to take over Florida from the Spanish. First of all, had you said anything other than 1810, I would have just like been dumbfounded because I, I read that. That's why I, I posed the question. But, you know, I have a 
I I have a a good friend who comes from Toronto. And I've done it for over a decade. Mm-hmm. And he has long maintained that the Canadians burned down the White House. Could you please clarify this myth once and for all? Well, I'll try, but I'll <laughs> guarantee you it's not going to make a dent in Canadians. Because it seems like every Canadian is, is taught this uh, from day one in school. So he's not alone. Uh, he's whenever not alone. I cross the border... Oh, no. You know, I, I go into Canada a lot because of a lot of the work that research I've done has been in Canada. And uh, when I go to, to passport control, they'll ask me, well, why are you coming into Canada? I said, doing historical research. And then uh, they say, what do you work on? I make my mistake. I say the War of 1812 um, because that's a mistake because then they're going to want to give me a history lesson to make sure that I understand, and the chief things they want me to understand is A, that the United States lost and the Canadians won, and B, they burned down the White House. Okay, Uh, I'm perfectly willing to concede that in this complex war, the War of the 1810s, a a subset of it it involves the invasion of Canada and the United States. What I will not concede is that it's Canadians who burned the White House. As far as I can tell, there were no Canadians in that military operation, which was conducted by British troops recently brought over from Europe, who also was there was a couple of about 300 former people of Virginia and Maryland who had become British troops as colonial Marines, and they were involved in burning the White House. So there were a lot more uh, former enslaved people involved in burning the White House than there were any Canadians doing it. Hmm. You, you know, that, that, that raises a, another a point that you wrote earlier um, in, in, in the text that um, you talked about uh, during the war, thousands of enslaved people had, had fled uh, what would be called, loosely called the United States, seeking freedom by helping the British fight. Uh, for most blacks regarded the Britons as the truer champions of liberty. Could, could you say more about that, about that episode? Well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so if you're held in slavery by people of the United States, and those, the people of the United States go to war with Britain, there is an opportunity for the British to create trouble within the United States by offering safe haven for people who wish to escape from slavery and who are also willing to fight to help the British in part by going back to their former neighborhoods and and helping more people to achieve their freedom. So the British do that during the American Revolution and then they also do it during the War of 1812. And this is something that is terrifying to the political leaders of Southern states, including President James Madison, who worry that these these runaways who are being recruited into the British forces are gonna build the British forces up to a point where they will be able to defeat the United States in this invasion uh, during the War of 1812. Now, the, the British and the United States work on a peace treaty before that comes to create a major crisis for the United States. But it it sets the template for what Union forces will do during the Civil War. 
where the, the liberation and then the recruitment of African-Americans would become essential to the Union war effort and essential to the victory in that war effort. And, and during the, uh, what, what I what was commonly referred to as the Revolutionary War, which I prefer to call the War for Independence, um, the British issued an Emancipation Proclamation, if you would, what, about eight or nine months before the Declaration of Independence? Is that correct? Well, it's 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 not really an Emancipation Proclamation. It's Dunmore's Proclamation, which he issues in uh, November of 1775. And what it says is, if you belong to a, a master who is in rebellion against the king, in other words, one of these patriots, like George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, um, and you run away, and you will serve um, uh, in the British forces, uh, you will win your freedom. Now, it's an invitation that's also extended to indentured servants who are overwhelmingly uh, white people from Europe. Uh, so there are ways in which it's, it's extended to more than enslaved people, and there are ways in which it doesn't extend to all enslaved people, just because there were loyalists who were, who were plantation owners and farm owners who had enslaved people, and the British are quite clear in this proclamation. It's also not issued by the British government. It's issued by one governor. Lord Dunmore, who, and it extends only to Virginia. So there are ways in which it's limited, but it is extremely important nonetheless, because thousands of African-Americans start to flee to the British forces and it creates this association uh, in the minds of African-Americans held in slavery, which was almost all of them at that time, uh, with the British as potential liberators. And, and I, I couldn't help but think about the similarities to Lincoln's emancipation that did not that only applied to states in rebellion and didn't re apply to the slave states that st remained loyal to the unions. I, I see the similarities there. Yep, that's true. And it, it also didn't apply to areas of those slave states that were under union military occupations, such as New Orleans yeah. and, uh, and Tennessee. So uh, that's why there had to be the 13th Amendment that Lincoln pushed for in 1865, which is um, even more, far more important than the, the Emancipation Proclamation, as important as that proclamation is. Again, I'm speaking with two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Professor Alan Taylor about his latest book, American Republics, A Continental History of the United States, 1783 to 1850. Uh, you mentioned, we just mentioned uh, uh, the Civil War and Reconstruction Amendments. Uh, factoring those in, has the nation, in your view, reconciled the incongruence from its initial underpinnings um, that you write about in American Republics? I would say the American people have always been a diverse and divided lot. Um, and so the answer is some have and some haven't. Uh, and um, I think things are obviously a hell of a lot better in the United States today than they were when I was born in 1955. And it was a hell of a lot better in 1955 than it was in 1855. So has the country made progress? I think it would be a great mistake to say no. Uh, would, would I say that the, the ideals of the Declaration of Independence have been fully achieved at this point? I think it would be a great mistake to say yes to that. 
the United States is an experiment. It's an ongoing experiment. It will always be an ongoing experiment in free government. An experiment then depends upon the participation of its citizens. The more, uh, the better informed those citizens are and the more active they are in following what's going on in this country, then the more likely we are to get closer and closer to the ideals of the American Revolution. Uh, and I realize, Professor Taylor, that uh, we sort of touched on this earlier, but um, the, the part of your role uh, uh, is, 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 is a glance backwards um, for contemporary time. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, what should uh, American republics say to us in the present moment? Well, I like to say that what history does is it provides us depth perception of our place and time. And that if, if we don't know history in, um, in a broader, deeper way, we're, we're stumbling around more blind in our own situation today. Now, I've written a book, which it's a fairly long book, um, and there's a lot in it. And so different readers will take away different, that's fine. Uh, But what I hope people take away is that our republic began with a lot of flaws. It also began with a lot of promise. And whether we are stuck in those flaws or if we realize its promise is ultimately up to us. Uh, We're not a country on autopilot. No country is. But there, there are people. People today who will say, well, just go back to what the founders wanted and we'll just go back there. It's originalism and we're all going to be fine. Well, that's we live in a vastly different country um, in which the population is about 300 times. Well, no, it's about 150 times larger than it was there with a complex technology with many people who've come from many corners of the world. And. Uh, But this is a republic which has a certain flexibility. Right now, it's being unfortunately quite inflexible, and that's creating our problems. Uh, Or it's one of the sources of our problems. So I would would like people to be uh, reflective about the journey that we've been on in this country and to see that there's been a hell of a lot to overcome over time. The book... American Republics, a Continental History of the United States, 1783 to 1850. I've had the pleasure of being in conversation with its author, Alan Taylor. Professor Taylor, thank you so much for joining us today on The Public Morality. Much appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.